I feel like there's something. I've been gone for so long. I feel like there's something else that I'm supposed to be doing up here, but I guess we'll get into the word of the Lord. How's that? Is that all right? Amen. Let's get into God's word tonight. Amen, amen, amen. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation. I want to thank this church for giving us a few days off to just get a little rest and relaxation. We were able to to take a trek up into northern Michigan and see some water, and it was just really refreshing and enjoyed our time off. I hate to cancel church, uh, but but it just it was worth the time away. Amen. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Amen. So we're going to get into the word of the Lord here. The book of Revelation. We're going to continue in our series on the direct messages, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And we have a challenging, convicting, a difficult letter to discuss this evening as we take a look here at this church in the city of Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now you remember that there is pattern in each and every one of these letters, seven similarities. Jesus first of all identifies a quality or aspect of himself, his nature. He says that I am he who has the seven stars, the seven spirits of God. I have the messengers. I have the churches. I have the pastors in my hand. I'm well acquainted with their condition. I know them. I have them. I possess them. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but indeed you're dead. He says, be watchful and strengthen these things which remain. Whatever is still there, whatever faith you still can muster, whatever hope, whatever semblance of a commitment and a dedication to God, despite what the reputation is, despite what it looks like on the outside, I know the heart, I know your condition, I know your inner thoughts and feelings. And he says, be watchful. He says, hold on to that which is still there and which is getting ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. They're lacking. There's something missing. There's something fading and there's something dying. He says, therefore, remember how you have received and heard. Remember what you first received, that faith that was once delivered, that way in which you were instructed in the admonition of the Lord, that faith, that form of doctrine, that that form of life. Remember that and hold fast to that and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, if you will not remember, if you will not turn, I will come to you and it will be as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. He says, for you have a few names, though, therefore, in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they will walk They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7, and to the angel, oh, that's it, verse Let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. And so tonight, for just a few moments, as we take a look at this fourth edition, this fourth installment of this revelation that the Apostle John received while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, this this direct message that Jesus is giving to his church here in Sardis. It's for the next few moments that I want to take a look at this church that reflects a dead church, a dying church, a church that is losing touch with its faith and with its conviction. And so for the next few moments, I want us to bow our head and I want us to pray and I want us to ask the Lord to help us as we take a look at this church in Sardis to hear what the Spirit would say to the church in Trafalgar. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word, for your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword that will divide to the hearts and minds, to the soul and to the spirit as a divider and a discerner of the thoughts and even the intentions and motives of our heart. Nothing is hidden before your eyes, Lord, but we are all bare before you, Jesus. We pray, God, that you would speak, that you would resuscitate, encourage, strengthen that which remains. We give you praise and we give you honor. and We ask it all right now in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. And you may be seated. Amen, 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 amen. We're going to jump right into the content of this letter tonight as we talk about the church of Sardis. It's of the seven churches addressed by Jesus in the book of Revelation that this fourth letter is written to this city located in Asia Minor known as modern-day Turkey, this city of Sardis. It was this city that was unique in the ancient world. It's, it was located strategically Roughly 30 miles south of Thyatira, it was an inland city. It happened to be located directly in the path of several important crossroads connecting most of the cities of that region. In many ways, the city of Sardis was considered a crossroads of Central Asia. It was the crossroads of this province. It was a crossroads of this region. And since this particular region of Asia Minor was one of the most politically important and economically prosperous regions in that entire Roman Empire, drawing people from all over the world, not only in Rome, but from all over the world, Sardis became a major tra travel hub and trading post, resulting in great material prosperity. People would come, bringing their goods, bringing their services, and route to Ephesus, and route to Pergamos, and route to Smyrna, and route to Thyatira, and route to Italy, and to the coasts, and to Athens, and all over the Roman world, and they would have to, on most occasions and in many occasions, travel through this major crossroads named Sardis. In fact, Sardis became such a financial hub that some of the first known coinage ever minted in the world was done so here in Sardis. It's because of this unique history that some scholars have even referred to this particular location, the city, as the birthplace of modern money. If you were to travel to Sardis in ancient times, one of the first noticeable features that would be, 
would be the towering pillars of the Acropolis, which stood some 800 feet off the ground. If you want to scroll through some of these pictures to give an, get an idea of the, of the topography and the landscape, not only were the citizens surrounded by beautiful architecture, but, but not only that, but they were surrounded by wealth and by beauty. The city itself was surrounded by an enormous rock walls that elevated almost at a 90-degree angle above the, above the earth, giving the impression of, of security and isolation from outside threats. In fact, so secure were these walls this, that surrounded the city that historians tell us that this city, although it was attacked on many occasions, was only penetrated on just a couple of occasions. And so as with other cities, Sardis contained many temples to the gods in which they worship. In fact, Sardis had a temple made to the goddess of Diana that was as well-known and was as tall and as magnificent as the famous statue of Diana located in the city of Ephesus. And so we see that because of its central location among many crossroads in that region, that Sardis and its citizens, that they enjoyed great wealth. We see that because of its world-class architecture and modern amenities, that Sardis and its citizens enjoyed great comforts and great conveniences in that day. We recognize that because of all of the unique topography and towering walls of stone enclosing the city, making it feel as though it were a fortress, making it nearly impenetrable, that Sardis enjoyed a great sense of security. We know that because of its great religious sites and temples, that the city of Sardis probably soothed its moral conscience by priding itself for placing great importance on religious devotion. And so because of its wealth and because of its security and because of its religious devotion and because of its modern-day comforts and conveniences, the citizens of Sardis likely lived with a strong sense that everything in their life was fine. They were comfortable. They were convenient. It was convenient. They were secure. They had wealth. They had affluence. They felt protected. They felt like their life was fine, their life was comfortable, their life was con con convenient. And so as a result, we find that from history that this, this city, this community was, was became self-indulgent and self-satisfied. They had everything that they would want. They had everything that they would need. As a result, they felt very much alive. But as it has been said before, there is no deception quite like self-deception in the city of Sardis, and particularly the church located in this city was quite self-deceived. You see, as one historian put it, no city in the entire province of Asia had a more splendid history than Sardis. No city of that time showed, as he said, such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present-day decay as Sardis. Its history was the exact opposite of the church in Smyrna. If you recall, Smyrna was the persecuted church. Smyrna was the church that was dead, but yet it was living. Sardis enjoyed life and yet was spiritually dead. And while this church in Sardis seemed healthy on the outside, seemed like everything was fine on the outside, they had temples of worship. They had money in their pocket. They felt like their life was secure, and they felt like their life was safe. They were just living their life. The Scripture tells us that, in fact, on the inside, this church was very much dead. 
that the church in Sardis had become much like the city in which it resided. That this church had once been vibrant, had been effective, had been alive, but now it was lazy, it was ineffective, and it had lost its faith. It had become impressed with its past. It had become impressed with its past faith, its past prayer meetings, its past accomplishments, its past closeness to God, its past altar meetings, its its past commitment and dedication to the things of God. But because of its past and its infatuation and, and, and comfort with what it had done in the past, it was now no longer alert to face the challenges of its present day and of its future. Make no mistake about it this evening that this church in Sardis represents a dead and a dying church. They were once alive. They were once thriving. They once had faith. They were once committed. They once had joy. But now they have lost that which they once had. This was a dying church. And so it's to this church and The book of Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus writes these words. He says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen those things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received what you have received and what you have heard. Hold fast to what you have and repent. Remember where you've come from. Remember what you've received. Therefore, if you do not, I will come to you. But I will come to you as a thief. And you will not know what day and what hour I come upon you. And so Jesus gives this very harsh and this very stern warning. And I believe that this warning that Jesus is giving to this church in Sardis serves as a warning to the church in Trafalgar, that if we are going to overcome, that if we are going to live by faith, that if we are going to make it to heaven, that if we are going to get our family saved, if we are going to get our family to heaven, if we are going to grow up and live a life of righteousness, faith, and godliness in this present world, then we cannot fall asleep, that we cannot become lazy and apathetic in our faith, that we cannot allow ourselves to become comfortable in the conveniences of our life, I'll tell you, this church in Sardis serves a reminder that while our external conditions may be fine on the outside, that our spiritual condition is very much present and matters to God. That our external circumstances, our bank account, our our lifestyle, our living conditions, that all of the external things in life do not always represent what is taking place on the inside. But God sees past what's on the outside. God sees past what's just taking place on the surface. God looks to our heart and God sees the condition of our faith. God sees the condition of our prayers. God sees the condition of our worship. God sees the condition of our commitment and to this church in Sardis he sends a warning you better hold on and you better wake up and you better hold fast to that which still remains you have a reputation that you're alive everyone else around you thinks you're fine everyone else around you thinks you're doing well everyone else around you sees you coming and everyone else around you thinks things are the way they've always been but Jesus looks to the heart and he says I see what's really taking place you have a reputation for being alive but you're really dead 
He said, I've not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard and hold fast and repent. If you do not, I will come to you, and you will not know the day or the hour. So it's this church in Sardis that represents a church that is on the decline, a church that is dying, and sadly, a church that is soon to be dead. As I consider this church, as I was thinking about this and praying about this church and thinking about how I would approach this subject, I was reminded of a book that I've read through, and I, I, I pulled out, I own it, and I began looking through it, and it's a, it's a book by an author by the name of Tom S. Rainier, and he's a, he is a uh, Christian writer, speaker, former president of CFO, the CEO of Lifeway Research. It's a major Christian research group. I've used some of their materials actually quite often. And much of his work has been in consulting with churches that have been in decline and, and, and regression and to help them try to turn the direction of the ministry around to get a congregation back on track, to get churches back on a track of growth and, and, and spiritual health. And in 2014, he wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, in which he outlines a number of similar qualities or characteristics that he has found in literally and throughout his travels and his career, consulting with churches, talking to pastors and congregations and boards and, and helping get things turned around, churches that are declining and, and dying out. And he finds, and as he records in this book, several similar qualities and characteristics that I want to take just a few minutes here to go through. I think it will be an interesting study here as he gives a list of about 10 things that he has found as he begins going through and, and performing an autopsy on these churches that he has worked with that have died. The very first thing that he finds in a church that is dying or is on its way towards its ultimate end is that there's usually a slow erosion in these types of churches. That these types of churches that are on the decline, particularly true of congregations that exist inside communities where populations are rapidly expanding and growing, he finds that, that in, in situations where even the community may be growing and expanding, economies may be bustling and thriving, that the church is on a slow decline, that there is a slow erosion, that oftentimes church growth happens quickly, not all the time, but it's marked, it's noted that sometimes or oftentimes in churches that are on the decline, there is a slow erosion. He's not referring to the typical ups and downs of church growth, that sometimes churches tend to go up and down uh, in, in, in numbers and in, in congregation size and so forth. But over time, there is a slow decline. There's a slow erosion. He says that these churches tend to run at the opposite of their surrounding communities. Their trajectories tend to contract, contrast from the community around them. When the surrounding community is thriving economically, this, these types of churches are not. When the surrounding community is experiencing a surge of population, the church often is not. It's, a, it's, it's experiencing an erosion. When the surrounding community is increasing and improving and expanding, the church is not mirroring the pattern of its own community. It's not even keeping up. It's not maintaining. Instead, it is declining. Usually, erosion and decline happen slowly and is not as obvious to the congregation, which makes it hard to identify that often results in the denial of the condition of that church. In other words, what he is saying is, is that, that everything else around them may seem to be going well, but inside the four walls of that church, things are not 
at the same trajectory of the community. They're eroding, they're declining, they're shrinking, they're, they're regressing. And he says that the church, churches that are on the decline do not represent the communities around them. And the same is true not just of a church, but the same is true of an individual. He says the biggest problem with this slow erosion is that sometimes it's hard to notice. Sometimes it's hard to recognize because there's no sudden jarring event that causes churches like this to ultimately die. There's not some great falling out or split in occasions like this that are easy to identify and easy to, to address. But he says it's usually a slow erosion. It's a slow fading away. It's a slow getting away from the things that cause a church to have life and worship and growth and joy and power and praise. And I just can't help but feel that the same thing is true in the lives of Christians. That It's not always just a single event that causes good faithful people to fall away from their commitment to God. It's not always one thing that you can point to and say, this, is, this hurt me, this offended me, this upset me, this scarred me, this jarred me out of my faith. But usually in the lives of believers, it's a slow decline. It's a slow regression. It's a, it's a slow decommitment to the things of God. It's a slow desire that pulls you away from the house of God. It, it, it's the things, the small things in life that begin to eat at you and begin to cause you to question your faith and question your commitment to the things of God. It's usually a slow process. And he says the very first quality or characteristic that he sees in these dying in deceased churches is that it doesn't happen overnight, doesn't happen suddenly, but it is a slow erosion. The second thing that we find in this book, the autopsy of a deceased church, is that the past is their hero. He says, as he travels to visit more and more churches that were declining, he noticed that some congregations were unable to make significant shifts and adjustments and undergo necessary transformations in order to maintain their spiritual vibrance because it would force them to let go of their past, past revivals, past ministries, past leaders, past methods, past victories, past prayer meetings, past success, and even in instances where a new vision or a new opportunity is presented, it's ultimately rejected because of a preference for how it was done in the past. He said, there's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with having a rich heritage and a rich history. However, when a congregation becomes overly nostalgic, it tends to lead to a culture of stagnation and spiritual decline. And he says, it's these churches who often hold too tightly to their past that often fail to accomplish and achieve success in their future. The same is true of you and I, that not only are churches who hold too much to past victories, past prayer meetings, and past spiritual success ultimately fail to recognize that you're not going to make it to heaven on past prayer. You're not going to make it to heaven on past revivals. You're not going to make it to heaven on past success because we have not made it yet. But if we're going to get there, if we're going to overcome, if we're going to live by faith, we've got to keep on keeping on. We've got to keep on being faithful to the house of God. We've got to keep on worshiping and keep on reading our Bible and keep on praying. We can't hold Hold on to the past. The past won't save you. 
Our past spiritual condition is great. Thank God it's what got us here, but that is not going to keep us going. You can't just eat a meal last week and assume that's going to give you enough strength to get you through the day, the week, or the month to come. If we're going to be successful, if we're going to have revival, if we're going to forge forward, if we're going to raise our children to love God and to love the house of God, we've got to keep on keeping on. We can't hold on too tightly to the past. He says that unlike these heroes found in Hebrews chapter 11 who were filled with faith in God and his future purposes for their lives, as a result, were able to let go of everything in this life. He says these dying churches have held on to everything, at least everything that has made them comfortable and happy. They've held on to their past. They've, they've held on to uh, things too long. They've become overly nostalgic, and as, re, as a result, they've replaced their future with their past. The third thing that he says he finds and a church that is on the decline or decease is, is when a church either stops or refuses to look like its community. Get this. He says that as the demographics and the communities around the church building change over time. Get this. The willingness of the local church to embrace the changing demographics economically, culturally, and ethnically Will, will largely determine whether or not a church will experience positive growth and health. He says not only churches, not only should churches embrace and, all, and, and, and also reflect the community around it, churches should embrace and reflect the community as a whole. Diversity should be considered the strength of a church because just as the first century church started on the day of Pentecost with a mixed crowd of God-fearing people from every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and converts from Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. He says this pattern should continue into the current day. A healthy church should be a multicultural church, a multi-generational church in order to meet the needs of diverse communities around them. And when a church makes an intentional or unintentional effort to cater only to certain types of people, certain categories of people, certain cultures, instead of embracing the community as a whole around them, ultimately it creates a major problem. But when we as a church will proclaim the gospel to all, to invite all ethnicities, all ages, and to work towards racial, generational, and cultural reconciliation, we will fulfill fulfill God's plan on the earth. I want to tell you that a multi-generational church is a strong church. A multicultural church is a strong church because as we come together in all of our diversity and all of our differences and all of our personal preference and we come under the banner of Jesus Christ and submit our differences under the name and the authority of God's word, we come together, we are strengthened by our unity in the spirit and by our unity in the faith. There's some in in the world, sometimes diversity can cause divisions and factions and, and friction. But in the church, it should be a it should be a cause of strength and unifying uh, uh, rallying cry behind the, the the name of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that we, as a church, we cannot allow ourselves to become intentionally or unintentionally uh, uh, resistant to to allowing anyone and whosoever will into the house of God. A church must resemble and reflect the community around it. Number four, get this. Budgets reflect an inward focus instead of an outward focus. 
as a church budget becomes more and more focused on current members and member preferences and member comforts and member conveniences and less on outreach and marketing efforts to reach people outside of the church, it will eventually lead to decline. And as the church, as the church declines in new growth, the economic result is that more and more of the budget is directed towards self-preservation. This ultimately becomes a slow, self-consuming process. But when a church pri church's priority, get this, remains its mission, and its budget reflects that mission in a healthy proportion, a church can avoid the process of becoming inwardly focused. In other words, we can't just be so worried about us four and no more and what's going on in our church that we forget to reach out to this community in Trafalgar, that we, that we forget to reach out to our schools, to reach out to our neighborhoods, to get involved in the community, to to reach these children, to, to reach these families all around us. I still remember after that time of prayer and fasting, God speaking to me. I said, God, what can I do to bear fruit in this community? And God says, as you serve your community, you will therein bear fruit in the community. And if we ever get to a place where we begin to focus all of our time, all of our energy, all of our efforts, and all of our resources just on making ourselves more comfortable and fail to forget or cause ourselves to forget the mission, which is to reach the whole world with the whole gospel, we will ultimately fall into the trap of becoming a declining and a deceased church. We've got to stay on mission. We've got to keep our priority to reach the world. We've got to keep our priority to reach this neighborhood. We've got to keep our priority to reach those who are seeking after God. Number five, he says that when the great commission becomes the great omission, he says church members, he says a church declines when church members are no longer making disciples, when people are no longer evangelizing, when people are no longer reaching out, when people are no longer bringing in new people. He says that a church is declining when, when the congregation no longer is trying to, to bring people to church. And since guests are the lifeblood of a growing church, and over 80% of church growth comes from friends and family of current members, when the flow of visitors stops, when Bible studies stop, when personal outreach stops, when discipleship stops, then the decline begins. And so I want to just serve a reminder and a warning to myself and to this church that if we ever get to the point where we just get comfortable and just coming to church and going through the motions and not reaching out and not trying to get people to the house of God, I want to tell you that the church is ultimately going to suffer. As this writer says, it is a, a sure-tell symptom of a declining and a deceased church. I wish to God that God would just stir our hearts one more time, stir this congregation one more time for a burden for Bible studies, for for a burden to reach out, for a burden to talk to people, for a burden to love people, for a burden to pray for people. You say, I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to witness. I'll tell you, if you just fall on your knees and begin to pray and talk to God, God will give us a burden to reach the lost. God will give us a burden. And I want to just tell you just that we, 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 can't, we can't get so preoccupied on the results of our efforts that we fail to realize that God has, has the church under control. Some sow, some plant, some water, but God is responsible for the increase. If we'll just continue to sow the seed, if we'll just continue to spread the good news, if we'll just continue to share those $100 bills that keep showing up on our property, God is going to get the glory. Amen? Amen. Number six. Get this. He says, churches decline when they become a preference driven church. 
not a purpose-driven church, not a mission-driven church, not a vision-driven church, but a church in decline is often the result of a church being driven by the personalities and the preferences of a vocal minority. When a church becomes beholden to a vocal few, a church direction becomes limited to the preference of members, membership rather than to the vision of leadership. He says new programs may start, new ministries may launch, new methods may be implemented, but they will eventually be undermined. They will eventually not be tolerated or they will be outright rejected, typically as a result of complaining, critical, and unhealthy, opinionated membership. Thank God for this church that we don't have this problem. But he says when you ever get to a place where the leadership and the vision of the leadership is being undermined as a result of preferences and personal opinions. I like this type of song. I like this type of service. I like this type of thing. My preference, my opinion, my thoughts, and it, it trumps every it, it overwhelms the vision. It overwhelms and undermines the ministry. It overwhelms and undermines what God is trying to do through the church. He says that ultimately will result in decline. Number seven, get this. He says pastoral tenure decreases over time. So that the duration of a pastor's tenure becomes less and less. When a new pastor comes in with fresh vision, fresh optimism, fresh faith, but ultimately runs into challenges, frustrations, ineffectiveness, people fighting, conflict, issues, problems, challenges. The tenure of the pastoral leadership ends too soon and the church often suffers. He says churches get into a place where they, they, they become congregation-led churches and, and a new pastor will come in and the, the congregation will chew him up and spit him out and send him on his way and they'll bring in a new pastor and he'll try to get some things started and they get into this, this cycle of, of just bringing pastors in and letting pastors go, bringing pastors in and letting pastors go. And he says that, that ultimately when a pastoral tenure decreases over time, it's a sure, sure sign of a de deceased church. Number eight, the church no longer prays together. He said, outside of the formalities of an opening and closing prayer, the church is no longer intentional about praying together. He says, to contrast this, this prayerlessness in deceased and dying churches with a New Testament church that was constantly on its face seeking God in prayer. And like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the Bible says that that church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking of bread. And they were devoted to prayer. That when a church stops praying, a church starts declining. And the same is true in our own life. I want to just say it. I believe it with all of my heart. When we quit praying... When we keep quit making it a priority to have devotion with God, when we quit even trying to get into the Bible, when we quit trying to have time away just with the Lord, we are ultimately in a state of decline and regression. I feel this so strong in my heart because I've, I, I just feel God has awakened me over the past several years to the significance and the importance of prayer. We need to be a church that has a devotion to God through prayer and through the reading of the Word of God. It's not too elementary to have time with God. It's not too basic and childish for the pastor to preach that we need to have a devotion life, a prayer life, a, a Bible study life. If you've got to get up a half hour early to make sure you're praying and looking or, or opening your Bible, then you need to set the alarm a half hour early. If you've got to go to bed 
an hour early to make sure that you have time to spend time with God. Whatever it takes, we need to make sure we are making time and taking time to be with God. And if we don't, and if a church doesn't, if a church doesn't pray, if a church doesn't commit itself to God, ultimately a church will decline. And if we don't commit ourselves to spending time in prayer and devotion with God, it's only a matter of time before we become a deceased and a dying church. Number nine. It's a church that does not have a vision or a purpose or does not know its mission. This is a result of poor leadership, a lack of vision, no clear communication or direction. And over time, this results in a lack of clear purpose. And churches, churches without purpose ultimately will find themselves in a decline. He says if, if congregations are not engaged in serving, he says if, they're not, if they don't have a clear direction and a clear purpose, he said ultimately this leads to decline. The church has to know its mission. A church has to know its purpose. A church has to know it's here to reach the lost. A church has to know it's here to serve. A church has to know it's here to give and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that when churches lose touch with the mission of the Great Commission to go into the whole world to preach the gospel to every creature, ultimately it results in decline. And finally, number 10 is this. When a church becomes obsessed with its facility. When a church becomes obsessed with its facility. It was this church in Sardis that was considered to be, it was a beautiful city. They had beautiful architecture. They had beautiful temples. They sur were surrounded by beautiful scenery and beautiful topography. It was a, it was, it was a beautiful location. They had everything they needed. They were wealthy. They were in the crossroads of, of visitors. Their economy was booming. They had a great financial and economic system. They had everything that they needed. It seemed like everything was going well. It seemed like everything was alive. It seemed like everything was great on the outside. But on the inside, they were dead and they were dying. And the same is true in our own lives. We, can, we need to get out of the mindset of just thinking that just because life is comfortable, life is convenient, life is going well, that that necessarily reflects what's taking place in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, because the Bible says that God sees past the surface and He sees the inside of our heart. If we could stand tonight, I'm getting close to my time. Jesus says, in the book of Revelation, he says, your works are not perfect. I know you've got a reputation for being alive. I see you going through the motions. I know things seem fine on the outside, but he says, I realize that on the inside, things aren't right. That you're weak, you're declining, you're regressing, you're no longer praying, you're no longer worshiping. You no longer have a purpose. You no longer feel a draw towards your mission. He says, I want you to remember where you've come from. He says, I want you to repent. I want you to get back. I want you to hold tight to those things which remain. You've got to shake yourself and you've got to wake yourself. Unless I visit you and I come as a thief in the night. It was this author, Thomas Rayner, that said that when a church is in decline, there's three basic things. He categorizes these churches in three categories. I don't have time. Basically, three categories of spiritual decline. But the three basic, the three simple 
suggestions or recommendations that he gives for getting a church turned around is simply one, you've got to acknowledge your current condition. You've got to evaluate where you are. You've got to recognize and take inventory of your current condition. If you're not praying anymore, you've got to be honest about it. If you don't have a desire for the things of God anymore, you've got to be honest about it. You've got to, you've got to evaluate your life. You've got to acknowledge your spiritual condition. It may seem fine on the outside, but you know and God knows. And if you don't get this thing turned around, if you don't get a hold of God, if you don't come to terms with your faith, he says, ultimately, you're going to get to a place where you've lost everything. And ultimately, he says, I'm going to come to you as though it was a thief in the night. You've got to be honest with yourself. Number two, he says you have to make the necessary changes. He doesn't paint a real optimistic picture that when a church gets to a certain point, very rarely is it willing or able to shake itself enough to make the radical types of changes it needs to get turned around. But he says that he says it happens. That if a church is honest enough and willing enough to recognize where it is, and there's a desire to turn things around even though it may take some radical changes, some radical transformations. It may take changing some things and shaking some things up and moving some things around and, 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 and just realigning some priorities and some mission and some purpose. He says that when a church will be honest and make the proper changes, he says he's seen churches go from just a few to thousands to reaching their communities to having great revival, but you've, they've got to make the necessary changes. Same is true in our own life. That God's grace and God's mercy is always available. That if we could just come to God at an altar or a prayer meeting or a closet or a car ride and say, God, I need you. I, I've drifted. I've, I've grown cold in my relationship. I've fallen short of the purpose and the plan of God. It seems well on the outside, but on the inside, it just doesn't feel right. If we'll be honest and allow God to move us and shape us and change us and transform us, we can receive a transformation in our own life. He said, finally, for churches, they have to go from an inward focus to an outward focus by engaging its members in service and creating a, an outward focus on the community around them. The church members can't get stagnant and just coming and going and being comfortable and just, just their church experience being just one of convenience. But the members need to be engaged in service. They need to be giving of their time, their talents, their treasures to the purpose and to the mission of the, of the kingdom. I believe that to be true, that we as Christians, God didn't just call us to just come to church and go home, come to church and go home. We need to be serving, giving, contributing, giving of our time, our talents, of ourselves to the kingdom of God. And as a church as a whole, we need to be focused on the community, focused on outreach, focused on our friends, our neighbors, our, those who are in need. And if we will, he says, there is revitalization that is possible for even a dying and almost deceased church. I want us to just bow our head. I know this was a, this was a heavy subject tonight, but I just I felt the presence of the Lord even from the very beginning of this service here tonight. And I wonder if there's